CBHDD is reminding people that the Georgia Crisis and Access Line can help those worried about opioid and stimulant misuse. The toll-free number is online and is active 24-7. More information at opioidresponse.info. Thanks for listening to the Political Rewind podcast. Be sure to like and follow us and rate us on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for joining us for another edition of Political Rewind. I'm Bill Nygut. Um, I think we all know that there are have been uh, memorials to the Confederacy uh, dotting the landscape in towns all over the state of Georgia and across the South, for that matter. And of course, we know that many of them have already come down or are the subject of enormous controversy. Uh, communities of people who want to take down uh, those memorials as vestiges of a very dark past in the South. But there's one, the biggest of them all, that presents a completely unique and very different problem, and that's Stone Mountain, where there are carvings of three Confederate heroes to uh, those who were uh, believe that the Confederacy, uh, in fact, had heroes, which there are some people argue uh, didn't have real heroes. Um, you can't just take it down. Um, and there has been controversy around Stone Mountain for uh, many, many years. Uh, it's interesting that the state has protected it to a, a large extent. Um, and um, the history of the mountain is really fascinating. And that's what we're going to talk about on Political Rewind today, largely because the Atlanta History Center has now produced and released a documentary about the history of Stone Mountain, which includes information that many people may not be aware of in terms of uh, just when it was uh, carved, why it was carved, and uh, we're going to get into all that and more with our panel. Jim Galloway uh, is with me today, the uh, former uh, political columnist for the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. And Jim, one of the reasons, of course, that we're particularly interested in your participation in the show today is that before you decided to step down from the AJC, you got very involved in writing about efforts to rethink what Stone Mountain could be as an educational tool, how it might incorporate uh, civil rights to some extent. So this is a subject you've been involved with for a long time. Right, right. And it's pretty much started uh, in 2015 with uh, uh, the, 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 the executive director of the Stone Mountain Association. He had, had an idea of putting a, a bell tower up on the top on top of Stone Mountain to uh, recognize uh, the mountain's presence in Martin Luther King's 1963 speech, uh, his, his, uh, his I Have a Dream speech. Let freedom ring from Stone Mountain and other locations, he said, of course, in that speech. Um, thank you, Jim, for being with us. President and CEO of the Atlanta History Center, Sheffield Hale, joins us uh, today. Sheffield, thank you so much for being here. Uh, the documentary is instructive and uh, illuminating, and I'm really happy we're going to get a chance to talk about, about it on the show today, Sheffield. Great. Thanks. Thanks for having me. 
Professor Joe Crispino, who is the Jimmy Carter Professor of History and the Chair of the History Department at Emory University. You're in the documentary, Joe, and we're glad you could be with us as well. Thanks so much, Bill. It's great to be with you. And we're welcoming to the show for the first time, and I'm really happy to have you here, uh, Professor Cynthia Neal Spence, who's the co-chair of Sociology and Anthropology at Spelman College. And your contributions to the documentary were particularly interesting to me, and I'm looking forward to your observations today. Uh, we're pretty informal here. Uh, this is your first time on the show, but we kind of tend to call everybody by their first name, so... <laughs> Cynthia, welcome. <laughs> that is absolutely fine. And thank you so much. I'm really happy to be a part of this discussion. Uh, okay, let's start with this basic question, Sheffield. Why now? Why a documentary now about the history of Stone Mountain? Well, this is an issue that we got involved in, in starting in 2016 in the wake of um, the Charleston Massacre when we launched a um a, a website dealing with Confederate memorials. In 2017, we couldn't ignore Stone Mountain as being the biggest and baddest of all of them and um, with the most fraught history. And so we did a um, research paper on that that we put out and distributed to people um, involved with Stone Mountain and, a, and, and tellingly a timeline which sort of says it all about what, what, what the issues are with the mountain. Just read the timeline and you'll understand a lot more. Then we, then I hit the circuit of uh, PowerPoint presentations and inflicting those on people all over the state. And and I realized that everywhere I went, people were surprised at the facts, no matter what they thought coming in, which position they were coming from. They did not understand. COVID hit. We decided to have a digital um, focus and we hired a digital storyteller and I dumped all of the Christian Weatherspoon, all of my PowerPoint presentations, all of our research that we'd done on her desk and asked her if she could do something with it. And this is docu 30 minute documentary is the result. Um, Joe, let's first of all uh, talk about the fact that who are the three uh, uh, Confederates depicted on the mountain? Yeah, you got Robert E. Lee, Stonewall Jackson, and Nathan Bedford Forrest. Um, and this this carving was uh, put up at the time. Uh, I got the three right, didn't I, Sheffield? No, Stonewall. <laughs> I said Stonewall. Stonewall Jackson. Oh, 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 yes. Stonewall Jackson, Lee, and Jefferson Davis. Oh, Jefferson Davis, not Nathan Bever. Thanks, thanks for that. Uh, but I want to talk about the, the broader context in which this thing was carved, because this was part of a broader uh, movement that really began, um, you know, as soon as the war ended, and we refer to it as the Lost Cause. And um, the Lost Cause was a, the title of a book published by Edward Pollard, who was a Richmond newspaper editor in 1867, and it was essentially a kind of uh, of, an, of, a, of a kind of battle cry that you know the south the south had lost the war but it's a battle cry for for them to battle for try to win the peace to try to win the ideas about what the war was about and that began immediately after the south lost the war and that persisted and it persists to this day in many ways by creating this kind of mythology about what the about what the the nature of southern of, you know antebellum southern society what the what the uh, what the reasons were that they fought um, all of that ideas, all of those ideas um, 
you know, began immediately after the war. And they culminated in efforts to memorialize the war, not in the immediate aftermath of the war. In fact, Robert E. Lee famously himself, you know, when he was still living, thought that there should be no memorials to the Confederacy. But this happened at, in that generation as as the generation of, of Confederate veterans were dying off around the turn of the 20th century, that's when you begin to see all of these memorials begin to spring up. And that's when uh, uh, you know, the United Daughters of the Confederacy begin their campaigns to put up these memorials. Um, and they're the ones who were behind the effort to, um, uh, to, to carve the, 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 the carving on Stone Mountain. Cynthia, I do want to unpack that <clears throat> timeline because it's instructive and important. But before we do, I, I was struck by uh, you, some observations you made about your personal experience of Stone Mountain in the documentary. And that was your family's view about Stone Mountain and whether it was an acceptable place for you all to spend time. Yeah, uh, it, in many ways, we had a divided household. My mother, you know, believed that we should take advantage of various, you know, sites for amusement within the um, state of Georgia, within, you know, the, the metropolitan Atlanta area. And um, would readily, you know, get us together, packed up in a car and go on picnics with her club members or what have you. But my father, um, was adamantly opposed to us visiting Stone Mountain because he was situating his opposition with the history of Stone Mountain. And that history for him was that it was a place where the Ku Klux Klan organized. And he said, I'm not going any place where it is clear that they overtly do not want Black people and that um, violence has occurred. Um, on behalf of individuals who assembled there. So there was a clear division in the household. Um, so, Jim, let's start talking about how uh, the uh, carvings came about, how Stone Mountain became uh, such a virulent symbol to uh, so many people and, and, and a place where those who were uh, supporters of the Confederacy and the history of the past uh, found it to be an important landmark. We should point out that long before the carvings uh, uh, were uh, put into the side of the mountain, this was a place of uh, white supremacy. Uh, in 1915, I think I've got that right, Sheffield, uh, and, and Joe can probably correct me if I'm wrong, it was in 1915 that the Ku Klux Klan went to the top of Stone Mountain and had a cross burning. And there were two things that had happened that I think led to that cross-burning, Jim. One was in Birth of a Nation, where the Klan is celebrated, they have a cross-burning which was replicated by the Klansmen who were reviving the Klan at that point in Georgia. And the other, I think I'm correct in saying, was they went there to have the cross-burning in the aftermath of the Leo Frank lynching in Marietta. Jim? Right, right, and this was uh, this this happened on on of all days, uh, I believe Thanksgiving Day, the evening of Thanksgiving Day in 1915, and uh, uh, it was uh, it, at, right at that same time you had the you you had uh, uh, talk beginning of of putting a carving on, on on the side of that mountain, and there were there was some uh, there there was some talk and and some uh, of 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 commemorating not just the Confederacy but the Klan. 
uh, on that on that monument of 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 uh, putting putting the night riders on, on the side of that mountain. Uh, it was the project of the of the Georgia uh, chapter of the United Daughters of the Confederacy, and it kind of it went in fits and starts. Uh, and and ultimately, I, I think uh, it petered out in about the, in 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 the mid nineteen twenties and 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 the depression, and then the gauntlet was kind of picked up uh, uh, in 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 the nineteen fifties and became part of uh, Marvin Griffin's massive resistance to uh, the Supreme Court. Uh, uh, it, it, it's it's its decision on Brown versus Board of uh, Education. Uh, uh, in 57 uh, uh griffin put out a a, a statement to that, that was published in all of these small newspapers throughout georgia uh basically explaining why he wanted to buy the stone mountain park the the, the 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 stone mountain and the property on behalf of the state tourism was one reason uh and 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 he cited the embarrassment of of the united daughters of the confederacy who couldn't get their act together but specifically he said he wanted the mountain to become a gathering place for the fight we're now involved in which was the fight against integration all right, you've said a lot there, and I'm going to back us up and slow us down a little bit and go back, Sheffield, to 1915. That, okay, the Klan rallies on the top of Stone Mountain. They burn a cross. Uh, they've seen it in uh, Birth of a Nation. And they're reacting to Leo Frank, uh, the Jewish merchant who was eventually lynched uh, uh, by uh, those who believed he was the murderer of uh, Mary Fagan. Um, and it was also 1915, Sheffield, when Helen Plain of the United Daughters of the Confederacy began talking about making the mountain a memorial to the lost cause, right? No, that's correct. And and she um, picked up a lot of steam um, from the United Daughters of the Confederacy and moved it along. But she also had a lot of people join her effort um, who were members of the Klan that had just been reformed. And so it was sort of a mixed bag of people that became involved with this whole project um, that, you know, picked up, you know, they really started the carving in the, in the 1920s. And, um, and then in 1925, actually, it stalled for, at, at that point, and they fired Gutzon Borglum, who they'd hired to be the carver, and blew his um, head of Lee off the mountain and started over again with a new carver. Then they ran out of money in 1928, and that's the way it sat until 57 days after Brown versus Board of Education when Marvin Griffin made it a campaign promise to buy the mountain and restart it, the carving. And so the mountain was bought in 1958, as Jim was talking about, and then carving was restarted in 1964, seven days after the Civil Rights Movement was passed, and it was finished in 1972. Joe? Uh, I just want to point out, Bill, that um, Stone Mountain wasn't the only kind of um, foolish idea that the United Daughters of the Confederacy had back in the 19-teens and 1920s. This was also the organization that led a campaign to try to get established on the Mall in Washington a memorial to loyal slaves during the Confederacy. That was called the Mammy Memorial, and it was introduced into, into Congress by a Southern legislator, all at the instigation of the United Dollars of Confederacy. So this is one of the memorials. And they didn't succeed in this memorial in Stone Mountain either. Remember, the United Daughters of the Confederacy didn't, didn't succeed with this carving. 
Uh, they didn't have a carving up there. It's the state of Georgia that succeeded with this carving, you know, 30 years later when they started. And one of the things you talked about interest, that's interesting to think about, Jim, uh, you mentioned earlier, Jim, about um, how Martin Luther King and his uh, I Have a Dream speech in August 1963 said, let freedom ring from Stone Mountain of Georgia. The carving wasn't completed when he said that. There still wasn't a completed carving on the side of, of the mountain when, when Martin Luther King invoked it and I have a dream. In fact, when I think the thing that's really most interesting, one of the most interesting things about the project the History Center has done is if you go online, you can see on the online exhibits the exact timeline of all these signature landmark historic events that were happening in the civil rights movement in the 1960s, like Sheffield said, like the march, you know, uh, the march on Washington, the Birmingham protest. And, and what what was happening in terms of progress on the carving. So it really does reinforce that this is a modern carving. This is a contemporary thing that was done in an era of intense re political reaction against the modern civil rights movement. I, I think that's really important to talk about, Cynthia. Um, the, the carving on the mountain actually wasn't even dedicated until 1970. It was re relatively contemporary history, which surprises, I think, many people, Cynthia. And by the way, Vice President Agnew attended the dedication yeah. of the uh, of the carvings. So, Cynthia, um, for those people who think that monuments like Stone Mountain and those that are in many town squares, for those people who think they really are there to honor the Confederacy, they're a bit mistaken. They're really there uh, as a, uh, a statement in opposition to the way in which integration was becoming the law of the land through the 20th century. Yes. yes. And, and, but, I, but I also think that we, we have to continue to connect the lineage, however, of the idea of honoring the Confederacy, because honoring the Confederacy was in fact honoring a particular ideology that has mm, a lineage. Sure. And so in the contemporary moment of the 70s, that lineage was still alive and strong. And so you're paying tribute not only to these three characters of the Confederacy, but you really are paying tribute to an ideology that suggested that there were certain individuals within society and particularly even in the state of Georgia who did not have the right to have equal rights. And so the Daughters of the Confederacy, the governor and others still were holding on to that ideology. And what better way than to have this kind of immu immovable and immutable kind of uh, stone monument to an idea. And so I think that's one thing that we have to kind of um, make certain that people understand. It's not just to these particular figures, but it's to an idea. It's a monument to an idea and a very adamant adherence to this idea that continues to feed our realities today. Jim? 
Uh, yeah, and, and, and I've got a question for, for Sheffield. Um, uh, the you make a very very specific point in this documentary uh, uh, about how to address the problem of Stone Mountain, and you ver- you specifically cite the 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 underwriting 1958 legislation, and 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 how that must be addressed, and and that's 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 a big lift for 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 the legislature it'd be a, it's a big lift for any, any uh, for any governor i mean have you have you had any discussions uh, about this happening no I, we have not and and our thought is to come and and present the facts as clearly as we can to get a timeline to get the governors and the other people in the legislature but the population in general to understand the context and and we, one of the reasons we focused on the law is I'm a lawyer, right? And so that I'm going to go straight to the statute that you know that governs the, it, the state's involvement. And it was set up in 1959 as a Confederate memorial and a public recreation area. Okay, and that's all 3,200 acres. That's not just the carving. That's that's all of it. And that's why you have the street signs of yes. say Jefferson Davis Avenue. In 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 uh, Robert E. Lee that cross or Stonewall Jackson Robert E. Lee, it's it's a theme throughout the theme park is the Confederate Memorial. That's why you have Memorial Drive that goes to the to the um, Stone Mountain. It's about the memorial, and so the question is, is that appropriate? But that's something that people can 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 get their teeth into. That's not necessarily do we keep the carving or do we blow it up? And. Uh... Bill, I just want to add on to a point there about Sheffield makes another thing that I think is really important out of the documentary is that, that a lot of Georgians may not realize yeah. is that there's nothing that actually nothing from the Civil War actually took place at Stone Mountain. You know, it's not like hmm. we're memorializing a battlefield there. It's not even like the city of Atlanta, you know, I mean, there, which, which was actually a battlefield. I mean, this is a place that that. Um, even when the the United Dollars of the Confederacy thought about uh, putting the carving there, it was already had become a, a site of tourism for Georgians. People would go there and hike and enjoy the beautiful mountain and all of those kinds of things. And it was partly, you know, part of the whole idea is that if you put up this carving, you would get more people to come. So it's been a, it's been designed as a tourist trap from from the very beginning. Uh, it's the idea that this thing would be a site of tourism, uh, uh, as you know, and it's just you could put a, a, a Confederate memorial there and you, you could draw more tourists. Um, so I think that's an important um, thing for all Georgians to remember when they think about this, this history. So, Sheffield, I, I want to be clear on uh, some dates here, if, if you'll help me with this. Uh, Jim asked you about what happened in 1958. Uh, it, that is when Marvin Griffin, Governor Griffin, uh, 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 said w- the state needed to buy that property. Have I got that right? That's when the state bought the property. He made it okay. a campaign promise in 1954, um, and then he bought the property in 1958, right? And uh, it took them that long to do it. And then it was so complicated in terms of the carving, they couldn't figure out how to do it until 1964. Well, and, and the reason I asked about that is because much more current to that, there's another date that matters a great deal in this. Uh, Joe, in 2001, when Governor Roy Barnes 
uh, began his initiative to take the battle, Confederate battle emblem, off the Georgia flag, part of the compromise included the um, unequivocal protection of the Confederate memorial, the carvings at Stone Mountain. And I assume the other uh, artifacts that that uh, were tributes to the Confederacy as well, yes? That's right. And so that was part of the compromise. You know, what, what Governor Barnes was doing in 2001 was dealing with the legacy of massive resistance. You know, the, the, the Georgia flag had been changed in the mid-1950s as part of this kind of thumbing the nose of the state of Georgia at the United States government and the federal government and at national civil rights groups who were trying to bring integration and equality to the states of the former Confederacy. And that's when they changed the flag. That's when they put the Confederate battle emblem on the state of Georgia, uh, on the flag of Georgia. And Governor Barnes led the campaign and he suffered uh, for it politically because of it. I remember I was a new Georgian when that campaign was going on. I just moved and taken a job at Emory University. And I remember seeing those signs on, on, uh, on highways all across Georgia. Uh, well, later on, actually, the signs, uh, uh, they're actually not about Governor Barnes, but they were about um, Governor Barnes' political opponent, Sonny Perdue, who made that issue, you know, his removal of it later on, an issue in the campaign he ran against um, against Governor Barnes. But uh, but yes, that's that was part of dealing with the legacy of massive resistance. And I think we have to see uh, whatever happens with Stone Mountain or doesn't happen with Stone Mountain, it remains uh, the kind of unfinished business of dealing with the legacy of massive resistance, of white massive resistance to the modern civil rights movement in the state of Georgia. That, that's what I wanted to talk about, Cynthia, um, just that. Um, you know, we, we can go back and look at how profoundly the ruling in Brown v. Board of Education affected white uh, uh, resolve to resist integration at all costs and beyond that, to put in place things like um, uh, Confederate memorials that came late to the lost cause that black citizens looked at and thought, these are there to remind us that we are not welcome. Yes, and, and I, I think it's, you know, really important. One of the points that Sheffield made about, um, you know, the progress with, uh, or at least the hopes for this particular documentary, but also the ways in which we um, use it to educate others. One of the points that, that I wanted to make is I would, I would imagine that you have large um, percentages of Georgians that just don't even know the history of Stone Mountain. They just know that it exists, but they don't even have our understanding of why it exists and what it is in fact memorializing. We also have to make certain that individuals recognize the importance and significance of symbols. And so clearly, Stone Mountain, it doesn't, as, as large as it is, it doesn't stand alone in terms of the symbols that have, in fact, been very intentionally placed to make certain that certain individuals within society really understand their place and understand the power of this kind of ideology that is, you know, that's really a racist ideology. 
And so it's very important that we begin to educate others, to help them to understand that when you go to Stone Mountain, that you are in fact on ground, ground that was declared sacred by certain sectors of the society of, of the state of Georgia, sacred in terms of making certain that racism and the, all of the ideas associated with racism would be upheld and that we would uphold them through various symbols to make certain that Black individuals in the society, regardless of what the federal government had to say, state of Georgia was standing firm, was standing their ground in terms of the need for segregation, but also the need of institutions and entities that would, in fact, respond in ways that are violent, violent to one's oh. mind, but also physically violent. Jim, we got to get to a break, but a last comment before we do. Uh, yeah, yeah. Uh, uh, Cynthia, I've, I've, I've often, often referred to Stone Mountain Park as kind of a corpseless cemetery. Uh, it's that, mm -hmm. that kind of sacred, uh, sacred ground. Uh, but I do want to, I do want to mention in Sheffield, uh, 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 correct me if I'm wrong. Uh, before, before the show, I, I called up, uh, yesterday, I called up Bill Stevens, who, uh, who, uh, who's kind of the, the, the head honcho over at the Stone Mountain Memorial Association. And, and, uh, he, he said that, that you kindly, uh, allowed him to view the, 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 uh, uh the, 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 uh, documentary, uh, uh, before, uh, uh, you, you gave him a preview of it. Uh, he, he liked it. He endorsed it. And, uh, he says, uh, every, everything that's in that, in that uh, documentary is, is going to be, uh, in an exhibit coming. All right. Hold on. Jim Galloway, as you often do, you, uh, uh, get us to a break and give us a promotion to what we ought to talk about in the next segment of Political Rewind. We'll turn to that and let Sheffield and the others respond after we pause for these messages. Thanks for listening to Political Rewind. If you like this show, you'll also like Georgia Today. It's a daily podcast from GPB News, bringing you compelling stories and in-depth reporting that you won't hear anywhere else. Join me, Peter Biello, for this quick and convenient way to get the best of GPB News' extensive coverage of the topics that matter to you, delivered directly to your device every weekday afternoon. We're talking about Stone Mountain today on Political Rewind and joined by Cynthia Neal Spence, co-chair of sociology and anthropology at Spelman College, Joe Crispino, the Jimmy Carter professor of history at Emory, Sheffield Hale, president and CEO of the Atlanta History Center, which has now produced a documentary about the history of Stone Mountain, and our good friend uh, Jim Galloway as well. Uh, so Sheffield, before the break, as you know, Jim Galloway uh, asked you a question that really pertains to what Bill Stevens, who runs that uh, uh, Stone Mountain Park right now, and others want to do next to try to contextualize in some way uh, what that, everything about Stone Mountain and the artifacts that pay tribute to the Confederacy, uh, how they can be treated in a less offensive way. Uh, Stacey Abrams, of course, in her first campaign for governor, initially said they ought to sand, they ought to blast the images off the side of the mountain. Turns out that would have cost multi millions of dollars. So now, contextualizing Sheffield seems to be the approach that we're headed toward. Is that right? 
I think so. From the point of view of the state authority that controls it, that's where they're going. And and what I had suggested, you know, years ago when we did the um, we put out our research paper is, you know, this is one monument in the country that has a museum already at its base. One place to start would be to take be able to tell the truth in that museum. There's no Confederate memorial that has an entire museum at its base. Well, if there's one that deserves one, it's this one. And and if you went into the old exhibit in that exhibit in that on Stone Mountain, there was only one little place in the whole exhibit that dealt with the Ku Klux Klan, and you had to find it on a massive wall. So they have said they're going to tell the tr truth about it. They said they're going to use our research paper as one of the bases. I showed them the documentary the week before we put it out because it's not a, this is not a gotcha deal. This is just the facts. And uh, we're not involved in that, but we're happy to help them in any way. Um, Joe, I want to, in preparing for this show, I couldn't help but think about a show that uh, we did some years ago. Galloway, you may have been on the show with me. We had an author named Ty Sedgley, who was a professor at West Point. He wrote a book called Robert E. Lee and Me, A Southerner's Reckoning with the Myth of the Lost Cause. And he used language in his book that I frankly had never thought of before. He said, Robert E. Lee, Stonewall Jackson, other Confederate leaders, they weren't rebels. They weren't the Confederacy. They were traitors to the United States of America. That's a powerful statement to think about in the context of our conversation today. By the way, that was one of the most popular shows based on listener response that we've done in nine years on the air. It, um, <clears throat> you know, it's that kind of framing, reframing, uh, Bill, that I think it still needs to be done. You know, I talked about Edward Pollard earlier and about the origins of the myth of the lost cause. That's a that's a intellectual and cultural project that began immediately after the end of the Civil War and that still has a remarkable sway in American life, even to this day. And there've been a lot of people pushing it back for it against a long time. But Governor Barnes, you know, is in the film and he talks about the way that he grew up in, in Georgia at the time. And that he didn't, you know, he, he was a, an adult practically before he understood that the South had actually lost the war. And, and, and you know, it's, it's not surprising necessarily when you think about how the South uh, lost the war but won the peace. You know, they won the ability to be able to define what slavery was about, that it was ultimately, a, you know, that it was a benign institution. That's the way it was, you know, presented. Uh, even in, in sophisticated seminars at Ivy League schools around the turn of the 20th century, you know, um, the idea, you know, that the, that the South, uh, uh, that secession was not about slavery. When it's in the first lines of the Georgia documents of secession, it's about preserving slavery. And, and in Mississippi as well, then you look at those documents, art, uh, statements about secession. So that's, that's a work that's been going on for a long time, and it's deeply rooted in our culture and on our landscape. And that's why it's battling against that. And that book about Robert E. Lee was a really compelling book. And I think that, you know, that's certainly where the scholarship has been for a long time within, you know, people who are teaching American history. We understood this, the lost cause, as, as to be a, a kind of intellectual and cultural counteroffensive against, you know, um, what Cynthia has rightly said. So it's about an ideology. Uh, 
to preserve, uh, you know, basically to preserve white supremacy, to preserve uh, white racial superiority. Um, because what happened when the Civil War ended, and this is the last thing I'll say, I'll let other people talk, but what happened when the Civil War ended, you know, there were a lot of people who were opposed to slavery, but were not, were not in favor of, social, of racial equality. You know, that's an important distinction to make, you know. And so when the, when the lost cause uh, campaigns begin, when that intellectual and social project begin, they, they galvanize people, uh, white people, North and South around the idea that there should not be racial equality, there should not be social equality. And it took another hundred years before there were inroads made uh, to battle against that fact, that, that both that idea and that reality in American public life. Cynthia? Yeah, I, I, I just agree. I think it's, I agree so much with what, what Joe is sharing. And also just really thinking about the power behind history, you know, what we know as history. You know, we know that those in power create and narrate history and that there should be a revision, reimagination, not, not so much reimagination, but a retelling of the story. But we are sitting in a moment right now where history is, in fact, being attacked, that there's only certain histories that should be shared, even in the state of Georgia. You know, we should not tell by law any history that makes individuals uncomfortable or that causes any type of, of tension within a classroom. But yet, um, the histories that we're telling are not whole histories. And so it's very important as we even think about Lee and others, the real history behind the, the roles that they played in the, civil, in the Civil War, or the real histories behind the names of the streets that are in Stone Mountain. You know, we need to be able to be free enough to actually tell the real histories. But in our nation, in our state, there are there's massive resistance once again to really telling the story of who we are as a people, what have been the dominant beliefs of uh, historically that have in fact contributed to some of the inequities that exist within society. So why not allow Stone Mountain to be a case study as we move forward to really correct the history? And Jim, what's interesting about this is we've talked about 1915, Leo Frank, the Klan on top of the mountain. Uh, we've talked about it in terms of the Daughters of Confederacy first deciding they should do some sort of memorial on uh, the mountain. Talk about 54, Brown versus Board of Education, uh, accelerating uh, the uh, uh, white uh, 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 legislature here in Georgia, the governor of Georgia, to push segregation forward even more. But you know what? We have to talk about current times as well, and why this is even more important today, Jim. We have to talk about Charlottesville. We have to talk about George Floyd in 2020. Um, we have to talk about Ahmaud Arbery. We have to talk about the social justice movement and the pushback of white supremacists and January 6th, which is become more prevalent than ever. So we're not talking about past history, Jim, as we look at reframing what Stone Mountain stands for. 
No, no, and it, it's it's uh, what has to be done, and this is this is I, I think is going to be this this is going to be a work that's going going to take decades, is that you have to separate uh, the Confederacy from Southern identity. Uh, you 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 have to have you have to create a society in which in which uh, 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 I view my history as you know as 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 uh, 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 Martin Luther King is is much a part of my history as anybody else's. Uh, it's uh, and it and it's going to be taking place on on all sorts of levels. We've talked about Stone Mountain. Uh, we talked about the changing of the flag in two thousand one. Uh, we have a current effort right now to rename uh, some iconic military bases uh, in in Georgia: uh, Fort Benning, uh, uh, one Fort Gordon, and Augusta, another. Uh, and it's 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 been talked about for for a good many years. It hasn't happened yet. Uh, we had, uh, the the trigger has yet to be pulled, and and uh, I I think it's going to take a lot of a lot more talk be, be, before we see these changes. Uh, we should point out, and I've got to get to another break. Uh, that part of this renaming uh, included the Naval Academy. Uh, just over the weekend, as we learned that Jimmy Carter is now home in Plains in home hospice, that the Naval Academy is renamed a building in Jimmy Carter, Carter's honor, one that had been named for a Confederate uh, military uh, officer, um, because Jimmy Carter is the only president who is a graduate of the U.S. Naval Academy. Uh, we got to take a break. We're going to come back with more. But you know what? While I've got this panel, I'm going to call an audible. Uh, we are all focusing on Jimmy Carter right now, I think, and his uh, apparently spending his last days at home in Plains. And this is a panel who can talk about Jimmy Carter, I think, really insightfully. So I'm going to ask them to do a little of that when we come back on Political Rewind. Sheffield, uh, Hale, before we move on, and, and I do ask you all a little bit about Jimmy Carter, uh, give us the uh, uh, information about how people can see this documentary, what other uh, uh, aspects at uh, the History Center, what other ex ex exhibits are available for people or documents for people uh, to look at around this. So we set up a, a, a separate part of our website to have this film, and it's available there, and it's available on YouTube. And you can watch it. And what we did is we wrapped it around a whole bunch of different information. I talked about a research paper that we did. That's on this website. A timeline that Joe Crispino talked about earlier, that's on the timeline. If you don't watch the documentary, just look at the timeline. That says it all. But it's a 32-minute documentary, and it's available, and it'll be on um, broadcast on GPB on TV on April 4th at 7:30. I didn't, I didn't even know that. Thank you, Sheffield. <laughs> um, Sheffield, we, I do want to tell people it. You know, you talk about it. 32 minutes is it's it's a very very good documentary. It's got people. Oh, like uh, Cynthia Neal Spence and Joe Crispino and you as part of it. But I found it to move very quickly and I learned a lot from uh, watching it. So uh, I just wanted to make sure we reminded people they can watch it online. Um, can we turn to Jimmy Carter for a few minutes? And Sheffield, as long as the ball's in your court, before the show, you said 
that you grew up a Jimmy Carter fanboy. What did that mean? You know, I started, um, my mother's from Sumter County, and um, and my father worked in a law firm that a lot of his people went to, that went to work for him. And so I grew up in an environment of, Jimmy Carter was my hero because he was the white Southern person that was like me, who was not racist. And and the way he presented himself to the country and the way that when he was elected, it was a huge high for me. But in high school, every primary day, I wore my Jimmy Carter T-shirt. I was obnoxious about it. Um, I was there the night I was there at the World Congress Center when I was 16 um, when he won. It was it was just a great event. And then I, I went on to be a, a intern for him twice for Jack Watson. But to me, that's what he represented. He represents I could be proud of in the aftermath of the civil rights that Georgia has moved on. Uh, when you talk about being at the World Congress Center, are you talking about when he won the presidency? I assume he, he now, won the you presidency. Were, yeah, yeah, yeah. Now, I was eighteen years old when he won. Yeah, I was sixteen then, so I could drive myself down there. Uh, I had a great. It was it was it was wonderful. I was that was a big high for me. Uh, he and pretty much uh, got me interested in in history and politics. There it was all together. Um, Joe uh, Sheffield talks about Jimmy Carter uh, not being a racist, and it, of course, he made headlines in 1971 when he was sworn in as governor and declared in that inaugural speech, uh, I don't have the exact quote, but essentially said the days of segregation, the days of racism in this state are over. He was on the front page of the New York Times the next day, uh, the first Southern governor to make such a declaration. Yeah, and he su surprised a lot of people in Georgia when he said that in that inaugural <laughs> speech because, you know, the mm -hmm. campaign against Carl Sanders in the Democratic primary had been really hard, bare knuckled. And President Carter, uh, or, you know, Jimmy Carter at that time was from South Georgia. He'd gotten the backing, he'd gotten the endorsement of, um, of George Wallace from Alabama. But, you know, I asked President Carter about that campaign when he was at Emory a couple of years ago. Uh, we had a really fascinating seminar on that room full of people, students, faculty. And um, I, I asked Jimmy Carter, I said, President Carter, when people want to throw stones at Jimmy Carter, they will say, look at that 1970 campaign against Carl Sanders. And, and how do you respond to that? And you know what he said? He talked about the, di the difference between the, him and Carl Sanders, he thought, was, was really an issue of class, that he worked with his, his hands as a farmer. He was spent a lot of time in black churches throughout that campaign, he said. He had worked hard to win the black vote uh, through his identification with a, a, an array of ministers in the African-American community. And so he didn't have any uh, regrets about that campaign. He felt he ran, it was a tough campaign. Uh, he had respect for Carl Sanders, uh, but he had no regrets about that campaign. But, um, but certainly when he, when he announced that, uh, in 1971, it made national news, and it really set the tone for the rest of his uh, for his governorship and for the rest of his career. And it was a really important uh, 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 moment in Georgia uh, in national history. Cynthia, um, there are people who have said that Carter had a failed presidency and that he was a weak president. But I think as we look back, and we're, we'll do this in more detail uh, in a show coming up, uh, the fact of the matter is that President Carter, especially in foreign affairs, accomplished enormous 
uh, 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 efforts to bring the world uh, together. And I'm not sure calling him a weak or failed president is correct, but his impact in terms of your thinking about your life. Yeah, I think about um, Jimmy Carter as kind of, as you say, a son of the South who actually recognized that racism exists, that inequities exist. And he was a firm believer in valuing the humanity in all individuals. And and so that was very evident, not only in his domestic policies, but also his um, international policies. And so it's really clear as we um, think about Jimmy Carter, he believed that individuals could come together from totally opposite sides but to find the basic humanity that existed among individuals who perhaps had different ideological perspectives. And so I think that's gonna be a part of his legacy. He, I believe that Jimmy Carter did in fact practice what we talk about when we talk about being anti-racist. He was very much committed to Mm. looking at policies that could change. So he accepted the fact that there there are ways that one can activate anti-racism, but also understanding the intersecting ways that racism operates and particularly around class. And so certainly his work with Habitat for Humanity and, and his work, his global work around the eradication of diseases for more marginalized populations, I think will be a part, what is a part of his legacy. And perhaps um, we were not ready for him at that particular moment in time when he was the president. Jim, you and I both knew him as journalists to one extent or another. Uh, Give us your thoughts. Uh, you know, uh, I know we're running out of time, but but to listeners, if you really want to to understand Jimmy Carter, you go to a very specific book. It's it's an hour before daylight. It's it's an autobiography. Uh, it's 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 of he strips the bark off, if if you will, off off. Off, off Southern society in in some in some very sharp details. Uh, he wasn't he wasn't raised in plains, by the way. He was raised in a community called Archery, and the and the and the uh, the richest man there was the the bishop of the African Methodist Episcopal Church, and and he he tells out how how uh, Jimmy's dad would not let uh, let let a black man come in through the front door, but the bishop refused to go to the back door. So he would send in word that he was coming, and he would pull up in his his his, his automobile, and they would talk in the automobile. Uh, uh, the bishop inside, uh, Jimmy's dad outside, and that's how they kept up the the the, the pretense of of segregation in 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 Plains and and the area. Um, real quick, just a quick go around uh, and start with you, Jim. Kindness and and a real belief in the um, in in the decency of humanity, really words that define a lot of Jimmy Carter. Yes, uh, absolutely, Jim? and and very very uh, and very very much a a, a a contrast to what we've experienced. Sheffield, uh, no, I I totally agree, and and if you look at the way he used that to accomplish things, a bipartisan Panama Canal Treaty. And also the Camp David Accords. That involved all those humanity. I think he's one of the American secular saints. You know, in the Catholic tradition, we don't honor people who are perfect. 
They honor people who live, live lives worthy of emulation. And I think that's, that's and, Jimmy Carter. And with just a few seconds, Cynthia. I think he's a role model for all of us. All right. We are completely out of time for today's show. Uh, Cynthia Spence, Joe Crispino, Sheffield Hale, Jim Galloway, thank you so much for a wonderful show today. Back again with a brand new show tomorrow. I'm Bill Nygut. In the meantime, take care. Stay healthy, everybody. Bye-bye.